Hello, and welcome back to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Garrick Heilman. I'm the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the Lemon School of Economics. Today, I'm joined by Ian Mayer, head of US public policy at Blockchain.com. As part of our Crypto Basics mini-series, today we're delving into crypto regulation. By the end of this episode, you'll find out if indeed crypto is regulated, what the current state of regulation is in the USA, and what's ahead for crypto regulation, and much more. Ian, first, welcome to the Blockchain.com podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. We do have a standard uh, question we ask all our, our guests, which is how they earned their first ever money. Do you recall what job or task you did to earn money uh, first in your life? I believe that would have been mowing my grandfather's lawn when I was probably seven or eight years old, which probably not old enough to operate a uh, push mower at that time, but... <laughs> I don't think that's, that's, a, that's the use of lawnmowers isn't regulated for sure. <laughs> Indeed. And maybe, maybe at that age it should be, but let's, <laughs> let's just kick off with this question that comes up still so often. I mean, we're 13 years plus into the existence of Bitcoin and I still hear this, Oh, crypto is not regulated. So let's just start with that. That basic question is crypto regulated today in countries like the U S the short answer is yes, absolutely. And the slightly longer answer is that we think it could be much more efficiently and better regulated, but that's part of the importance of engaging with regulators and lawmakers, both at the state and the federal level, which we're very proactive in doing. Great. So so for everyone out there, yes, crypto is is regulated. And who does the regulation? Who are some of the, uh, the main, main players uh, at the regulatory table in the U.S.? So it's interesting because at the state level, it's you could make the argument and it's pretty, a lot of people do say that it's most directly regulated by the state money transmission licensing regime, where you need to obtain what's called an MTL license to operate in a given state. We are in the process of gathering all of those. We still don't have all of them, but we'll get there. At the federal level, um, it's sort of divided. Generally, people think between the SEC and the CFTC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, there is some kind of debate about which, there's a, a lot of debate, frankly, actually, about what falls under whose jurisdiction, and there's a frequent butting of heads on the federal level of that, but it's not just those two agencies. The Department of the Treasury has a huge role to play. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is kind of Treasury's enforcement division, plays a huge role, and the IRS has also been quite active in issuing guidance over the years, although we don't, I, we're not enamored with much of the guidance that's come out of there, because one of the problems with the federal regulatory regime is that the SEC says certain aspects of, uh, certain aspects are securities. The CFTC says certain aspects are commodities. The IRS says it's property. It's just really kind of a, a, a jurisdictional butting of heads that makes compliance very difficult at the federal level in the U.S. And you mentioned FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is under the U.S. Treasury Department. And I believe that may have been the first federal agency to actually issue any kind of formal regulatory guidance all the way back in 2013. So coming up on almost 10 years ago, uh, you know, we've had some form of regulation of crypto. Is that a fair, fair, fair statement? Absolutely. And that actually guidance was a direct result of um, Senator Tom Carper from Delaware was actually the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee at the time. And he held the first ever congressional hearing on cryptocurrency. And I believe it was November 2013. And it was called Beyond Silk Road. And that was kind of the first time that it really sort of hit the radar for both lawmakers and um, regulators at the federal level in the U.S., 
Um, so I, I always kind of point people back to say it was Senator Carper and his very senior staff at the time were the ones who really kind of kickstarted the federal discussion in the United States. Yep. And, and one other thing that comes up around the question of regulation is, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing for crypto? I think the FinCEN guidance from 2013 is an interesting case uh, study or data point on this question because uh, it did actually, uh, many thought, lead to the price of Bitcoin and, and crypto generally to rally. And I, I wonder if we could just kind of briefly touch on how you know, balanced, uh, reasonable regulation uh, often can be constructive for the crypto market and for prices. Right, absolutely. I mean, and I always like to, you know, my, my background beyond crypto is in the multi-client lobbying and consulting space. And I always like to, you know, people frequently say the crypto today is much like the internet was in the 90s, but I like to take it even further back than that and say, look at telecom in the 1970s, look at railroads in the late 19th century. I mean, these industries would not have flourished without a, you know, healthy and well-balanced regulatory regime. It's just, and, you know, I mean, businesses hate uncertainty and the way you get rid of uncertainty is by you know having predictable rules of the road so i mean i'm in complete agreement and i think it's kind of crypto's turn up it turned to the plate to get uh, some sort of comprehensive regulatory regime in place yes now regulation isn't always uh, a positive uh we've seen some examples of countries uh you know going um you know to quite extreme lengths to to regulate or even ban crypto to to a degree and i wondered if you could kind of touch on some of those countries and who's doing that sure well the one that's top of mind for most people is probably china which i believe it was was it the sixth time garrick i think it took them yeah. to several <laughs> attempts to uh finally get sort of a ban to stick and that was sort of focused on mining operations um yes. but that sort of tells you about the staying power of this technology is that if a government with the level of control that the Chinese government has took them six attempts to get a ban right. And even then you could make the argument, I think that they didn't get it right. Um, but there's also a bit of a silver lining in that, that you know, it, it, there's a chance to really address some of the energy use and environmental impact concerns because China just does not prioritize clean energy use whatsoever. And a lot of those mining, um, mining interests that were banned from China came here where, you know, Bitcoin mining is only profitable insofar as you're not spending a huge amount of your um, resources on energy costs and renewable energy is more and more becoming the cheapest and most reliable sources of energy in the United States. So I think that's kind of the silver lining of the China ban. But the other restricted countries are kind of what you would expect, countries that, you know, where governments have an incredible degree of control and freedom is not necessarily a priority or even on the table. So Iran, North Korea, you know, some of the other more, no, I, think, I think I've heard the term in the past, non-aligned states, but it's it's generally you know I mean kind of a lot it tracks pretty much with what with what you would think in terms of countries that don't allow great economic or social freedom. Yep, and I, I think another important point to make is is we're talking we talk about countries that have gone as far as China has in, in banning uh, you know most if if not all of you know kind of crypto activity. Uh, we're talking about a relatively small number of countries globally. I don't know the number off the top of my my head, but it could be ten or fewer. That have gone to to those lengths, I, I believe. But um, but let's turn back to the U.S. market. Uh, there's so much attention and focus placed on the U.S. regulatory environment. Why is that? You know, I mean, the U.S. is the world sort of still follows the U.S.'s financial example, right? I mean, we still have some of the biggest and strongest capital markets in the world. The dollar is still the world's reserve currency. And this is, you know, it's interesting because if you sort of look at the macro picture, the institutional interest is, has kind of arrived. I was talking to some of our institutional team the other day, and they said within two or three years, they think most of the big 
financial players are going to have if they don't already have some exposure to the space. And these are mm -hmm. really sophisticated entities who kind of getting back to our previous point, depend on regulatory clarity to be able to serve themselves and their customers. So they're not going to really jump in with both feet until that is settled here. Um, and I think there's an understanding of this. I mean, we've seen a lot of recent developments kind of on the federal level, but I think it's kind of boils down to the U.S. markets are still so key to global markets and people still follow the United States lead on issues. Yep. And wanting to remain in alignment with with the U.S. regulatory posture because of how integrated uh, markets are with the U.S. U.S. system. Um, yep, exactly. So let's talk about the current state of of regulation in the U.S. We we had, a, you know, the the uh, Biden administration, the White House, of course, uh, announced something quite significant earlier this year. What is kind of the the, the, the current picture here in the US. Yeah, so the executive orders are kind of top of mind for most people here in Washington and with good for good reason, obviously. And my joke is that I've been waiting, you know, I've been in crypto policy for almost a decade now and I've been waiting for the real exercise to begin for about a decade. <laughs> so I, th I think, you know, some people weren't thrilled with everything the executive order did and said. Um, it's also important to remember that the executive order itself did not create or alter any policy. It's directing agencies to study where they think they have gaps in their ability to regulate cryptocurrency. So the first batch of reports uh, are due in kind of in June, the second are due in September. So you'll start to see more opportunities for public input uh, around June and September. And I, I always like to remind people too that these deadlines frequently slip and especially given geopolitical events right now, don't be surprised if we don't see those reports until a little later than their due dates. Um, yeah, but it's just it, it's a really net positive, I think, because it's, you know, we've like I said, you can't it, I would always prefer a whole of government approach where possible. And it's, you know, I, I would much rather have this than each little individual agency working in its own silos, which is kind of what it's been to date and which is yep. where you end up with kind of the meddy, messy federal patchwork. Yeah, absolutely. And let's let's hone in on some of the key areas of interest uh, that U.S. regulators are looking at. Um, you know, just we can go through these in, in no particular order, but what are kind of the hot topics, most pressing uh, areas in crypto that are attracting regulatory interest? You know, the one that's really interesting, and I, I hate to beat a dead horse, but it's the very first RFI that came out of the executive order was about the energy impacts of mining. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, obviously the Democratic Party is in power and they're going to always prioritize climate, you know, addressing climate change and the use of green energy where possible. So that just kind of tells you where that falls among the hierarchy of priorities and that that was the very, very first one that came out. Um, there, you know, obviously national security is high up the list as well. There's been a lot of discussion about potential use of crypto and sanctions evasion, even though Treasury and FinCEN continue to say they're not really seeing that in any meaningful capacity. But it's those are kind of the top two, I think. Um, and there's also a big focus on stable coins, just because they are, I think, both such a potentially revolutional revolution in payments technology that, you know, the Federal Reserve is exploring potentially creating something akin to their own. Um, but it's also a key on-ramp and off-ramp to the system. And I think that's sort of where regulators are looking to say, you know, we would, you know, they, they want to get their hands around it a little more where they don't, that, that's kind of a perfect example of something that they feel like they maybe don't have all the tools they need to regulate right now. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. And the president's working group on financial markets actually issued uh, a report last November that basically said as such that, that you know, we, we're still getting our hands around this. It, it also said they'd feel a little more comfortable if there was some degree of deposit insurance involved, although they didn't prescribe, whether that's a bank partnership or if stablecoin issues, issuers need to go out and get their own charters. Um, but so those are kind of the three sort of top of mind issues right now, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, and then two others that that get mentioned. Um, 
DeFi or decentralized finance, um, you know, the idea that, boy, there isn't uh, a headquarters and a CEO uh, atop some of these protocols uh, that allow for borrowing and lending or exchange mm -hmm. of, of crypto assets. I think really that non-hierarchical nature of, of DeFi certainly challenges many regulators and then um, non-custodial wallets as well, as well are, are a perennial topic. Yeah, and on DeFi, it's interesting because, you know, I, I always like to say that if this executive order means that we're in the top of the first inning, to use a baseball analogy, in federal mm -hmm. crypto policy, I think DeFi, you're probably still in the pregame warmups, just because um, they're re that's really just sort of now in the last few months starting to come on the scene where a uh, one of the SEC commissioners wrote a very kind of impassioned defense of it saying, uh, this has potential opportunity, but it also has real potential threats. I mean, you don't want people just off the street who have no understanding of what they're investing in, throwing their obviously retirement savings into a DeFi protocol. That wouldn't be good. And actually also at um, a recent Senate banking committee hearing, some senior Senate Democrats for the first time ever were discussing DeFi protocols and mixers. And it was the first time I'd ever heard very senior lawmakers sort of talking about those specific protocols and technologies. So that's just now sort of coming onto the radar, I think. Um, and as far as non-custodial wallets go, there was a sort of so-called midnight rulemaking attempt at the very end of the Trump administration that was driven by then Secretary Steve Mnuchin that would have pretty much been a unilateral ban or made it made compliance impossible, so sort of a backdoor ban on non-custodial wallets. And Treasury, when they published their regulatory agenda earlier this year, that was still on the agenda. But just the fact that it's there doesn't mean it's coming anytime soon. We unfortunately don't have a lot of visibility into if or even when. I mean, just because it's on the agenda doesn't mean it's ever actually going to come up. Um, but that is definitely still on the radar as well. You're exactly right. Yep. If some of these terms, by the way, like DeFi and non-custodial wallets are, are new to you, we're going to link in the show notes to prior podcasts or other written content that explain in more, more detail what exactly is a non-custodial wallet uh, or DeFi. So, so uh, look, for those, look for those links. Um, so let's turn to this question of... Um, of you know uh, governments adopting crypto, and we've seen some really noteworthy examples in the last twelve months. Uh, probably the most significant one being El Salvador's um, decision to make crypto legal tender. We've also seen local U.S. Uh, mayors talking, like in Miami, about uh, not only taking their salaries in, in Bitcoin, but also maybe using public funds to invest uh, some of the city treasury uh, funds in in Bitcoin, but. Um, yeah, to talk to us about what happened in El Salvador. What, what does it mean for Bitcoin to be legal tender? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe I'm too deep in the weeds to say that I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but, you know, I mean, it, it means it has parity with whatever the national currency previously was. Um, and it's interesting because I know Peter Smith, our CEO, was on stage last week at um, Emerge Americas, and he spoke kind of very eloquently about saying that, uh, you know, the, the El Salvador legal tender is a very interesting experiment, but he wasn't a huge fan of the compulsory nature of it and thought that sort of ran contrary to some of the foundational mm -hmm. principles of Bitcoin, which is financial freedom, right? So it's, it's an interesting question just because if you're mandating that it must be accepted, is that kind of fulfilling the original mission, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's interesting to note that that both at a, at a national level, you know, in the case of El Salvador, and there's rumors and some work going on, you know, in various corners, of government and other Latin American countries. And, and even I, I was just reading last night about, um, uh, about Central African Republic, maybe possibly looking at exploring, adopting Bitcoin, but also at the local level, you know, cities and states 
uh, it's really at various levels of government, we're seeing uh, a public sector embrace of, of crypto, which is generally probably overall pretty constructive for, for the future of this whole space. Yeah, and I believe, I, I'm almost certain actually that I think now just this year, both Colorado and Utah made it so you could pay your taxes in Bitcoin, um, which is interesting because there was this bit of a workaround involved because they had not modified, um, to your point about some you know localities and municipalities maybe considering holding uh, Bitcoin as an investment, but state governments currently cannot do that, or at least most state governments can't, but they made it so you could pay your taxes in Bitcoin if you so wish, and then they would sell it immediately or convert it to fiat immediately. Um, and there's also, we've had a couple of quite, quite frankly, very funny meetings with a couple of um, really kind of forward looking and forward leaning state legislators who were really bullish on the idea of making it uh, Bitcoin specifically legal tender at the state level in their given home states. And that was, it was kind of news to them because they kept saying, you know, when you talk to state legislators and state regulators in the US, everyone's looking to Wyoming as the lead and everyone kind of feels like they're behind Wyoming. And I've had a couple of instances where I had to say, well, Senator, what you're proposing is more akin to El Salvador than Wyoming. And they were a little bit taken aback by that. <laughs> well, as we as we uh, wrap up here and, and kind of look to the future, we've already talked about the White House executive order and kind of what the roadmap there looks like. Um, we've got the midterm elections coming up in the US. I mean, to me, it's just uh, incredible that crypto has become kind of like one of the issues that politicians now have to, uh, you know, have kind of a position on and, and, and um, you know, just in terms of the people listening to this podcast and, and how they can get involved in, in helping to um, express their views. I mean, should they be asking their representatives, what's your position on crypto or, or what can they do and what kind of things um, do you expect uh, beyond the White House executive order uh, and, the, and the working group there in the months to come? Well, as far as engaging elected officials go, I would say absolutely. Um, and a key message that I always tell people is that you know, congressional and regulatory staff are quite literally maybe the most overworked and underpaid people in the world. So be nice. <laughs> Reach out to them. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of calls to arms and people kind of digging into the trenches, but you, you catch more flies with honey at the end of the day. So, you know, be polite. Say, do you have a position? If not, you know, we'd like to help you develop a position. Um, as far as just looking ahead generally, I think you're right that a lot of people, the midterm elections are on a lot of people's minds right now. That's still an open-ended question of, you know, we could potentially be facing a divided government in the next, um, for the next two and a half years, wherein there could be complete Republican control of Congress and the Democratic White House. And historically, that's not a very productive legislative or regulatory environment. Although I have been part of bill, there's a way to thread that needle. So I'm optimistic that, you know, crypto's brightest days are still ahead in terms of um, legislation and regulation. And there is a way to thread the needle and get you know, legislation and regulation done productively in a, in a divided government. Yeah, and, and that may be a good chance to bring into this uh, discussion the fact that there is, you know, room for bipartisanship. We do have people on both sides of the political aisle who are um, supportive of crypto and blockchain technology. And it maybe it's just worth touching on that because that's, I mean, in this era of, of, you know, people criticizing how divided government is and there's no common ground, you know, for many of us, we see crypto as at least having um, some hope uh, in terms of bipartisanship and the ability to get things done with, with both sides of the aisle. Yeah, absolutely. And historically, it's, you know, my, my line is it's always been more of an easy sell to the Republican side of the aisle, just because it is sort of, a, you know, it's, it's a very libertarian ethos. But there are some very senior Democrats who've, you know, gotten off the bench and gotten involved, where Senator Ron Wyden obviously is a very passionate advocate for privacy, which you and I have discussed a little bit in the past. 
and also um, open source programming rights, where he's really truly believes that code is speech. So he thinks, you know, if you're trying to say that you cannot code in a certain way, that's equivalent to saying that you cannot speak in a certain way. Um, and another really great one is Senator Cory Booker recently was speaking very eloquently about an opportunity, you know, crypto and um, the entire space is potentially an opportunity for, you know, families, African American families, minority families who haven't had the opportunity to build generational wealth. This could be a way for them to catch up and potentially do that. And that obviously, you know, we always want to prioritize consumer protection and don't, again, don't recommend anyone go empty their 401k and invest it in Bitcoin or anything like that. But yeah, I completely agree with you that in the time of a really kind of partisan divided government, it's, it's just beginning to sort of turn the page. So that's good. We're ahead of the curve on other issues and other industries. Excellent. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great. Thanks so much, Gary. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please rate us and leave a review as it really helps boost our visibility to more listeners. Also, if you have a topic you'd like to see us cover, please get in touch at the following email address, podcast at blockchain.com. Once again, that's podcast at blockchain.com. Thank you.